I'm Emma G. Rose, author of Contemporary Fantasy and Mythological Weirdness. I'm Shelley Shearer, author of Urban Fantasies and Cozy Mysteries. Welcome to Indie Book Talk. Join us as we explore the expanding universe of indie books. Hello and welcome back to Indie Book Talk. We have Mariah Crawford. And Mariah is, yes, a writer, yes, a college professor, but also a private investigator. You know, those people you read about in books, but she's real and she's here and we're going to ask her things. I'm so excited. And and the dog is excited too. Dog, you <laughs> Do not apologize for the dogs. We have them too and they love to annoy us. This is my co-writer. And he's adorable. I've seen pictures. He is. He's a total sweetie pie. What kind of dog is he? He is a mix of bloodhound, ironically, and Great Pyrenees. <laughs> so do you take him on private investigator gigs with you? <laughs> you know, that would be a super bad idea. As you'll note from the, from the barking, I don't think that would go well. He does not have ninja skills. <laughs> he has very goofy, just a wonderful, goofy, friendly personality. He's the best dog, but and, and actually has a great sense of smell. You can always tell when a UPS driver has been by um, and and deeply distrusts all delivery drivers, which is very irritating. (laughs) He's protecting you from the scary, scary delivery people. Oh, but I love my deliveries. (laughs) I know, me too. That's how you get books. Exactly. So so let's start with the PI part, because that's totally unusual for what we've talked about so far on this. Um, What made you get a private investigator license? It's actually kind of a fun story. Um, I had a midlife crisis. It was intense. I hated the entire path of my life. I decided uh, after a very tumultuous process that I wanted to write mystery novels. And then I met mystery author, um, oh, and I'm blanking, Donna Andrews. Mm -hmm. I met her at a conference and she talked about her PI training. And so I thought, oh, that's amazing. That'll help me write a great mystery novel, which I have written a great mystery novel. And so I decided to check it out. She even had a specific school she recommended. And I went for that training and kind of got hooked. And I ended up um, jumping on work as soon as I could get it. And I did full-time PI work for three years. I was kind of half-time for maybe six more years. And I'm very, very part-time right now. Mm -hmm. Do you just do enough to keep your license going or... Um, well, strictly speaking, you don't have to do any work to keep a license. Um, you have to pay a lot of money to keep a license. <laughs> but um, so I do some work. I actually um, have gotten connected with some lawyers. I've done some really interesting murder and shooting related cases over the last few years. Really? So I've changed the kind of work I do. Um, but I've learned so, so much in the process. It's absolutely been amazing. So I was under the apparently mistaken impression that being a PI sounded really exciting, but then you did a lot of following people to see if they were cheating on people. Yeah. So the one kind of work I've really never done as a PI is domestic cases. Um, I've never done a cheating case. I've done some peripheral stuff like I have researched um, people's boyfriends for them. I have done a bunch of following of people. And, and actually, I will say, every time somebody's asked me to look into a boyfriend, there there was stuff there to find and, and pretty big stuff. So I helped end some relationships. I'm kind of proud of that. There are some relationships that need to stop before they start, you know? <laughs> that is absolutely true. I was actually hired, um, interestingly, by fathers, I think, mostly. I'm trying to remember. 
I was hired by a brother one time. Uh, in that case, that was a very, very exciting, dramatic case, actually. The uh, boyfriend in question ended up, he had an outstanding warrant, and we helped him get arrested in Georgia. And Georgia was so delighted to get rid of him that they drove him to Virginia, which apparently <laughs> normally the state with that, with the outstanding warrant will go fetch the person. But Georgia's like, no, we want this guy gone. <laughs> <laughs> we will escort him to you. Take him. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and that was a great thing. He was a terrible human being. So do you just like take these stories whole cloth and put them into books? Or like, how does this inspire your mystery writing? That's a really good question. Um, you know, when I, I started to blog early on in my PI career, and I, I realized almost instantly that I couldn't really do that because there's so many confidentiality issues. Mm -hmm. And so that's a toughie. I, there are a lot of things I will say about my cases if I'm not being recorded that I wouldn't say on a recording. <laughs> And, and this stuff never directly shows up in a story, but I definitely take a lot of um, a lot of ideas from the kind of work I've done. Honestly, I'm not sure if people would believe some of the stuff, some, some crazy things I've seen. It, it's kind of hard to believe the reality sometimes. So what you're saying is we need to take you out to dinner. That is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I think glasses of wine, that. you'll hear some great stories. Yeah, be like, okay, and go. <laughs> Make it what is PI training like? Is it like police academy or is it like spending a lot of time in a parked car waiting for someone to come out of somewhere? Um, that's also a great question. Every single state in um, the United States is different and every country is different. I believe last I heard there were still maybe four states that don't have any kind of PI registration or licensing or anything like that. In Virginia, where I live, there's a 60 hour training class. Some states really restrict it so that you have to do some kind of a apprenticeship to be a, a private investigator. And, and um, I've heard them described as retirement programs for state troopers. <laughs> but in Virginia, so there's a lot of classroom time, but the program I went to, the school I went to was amazing. And they had a lot of experts come in. I actually ended up teaching for them for several years. Uh, and we did some field exercises, but it was mostly classroom stuff. Um, 60 hours is really not that much time. I think I would say, I'm guessing this is one of your questions, but I came from a background where I did a lot of analysis and private investigations is analysis. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more to it than analysis, but analysis is a huge aspect. So are you like a really methodical writer who plans everything out because that's how your brain works? Or do you, when you're writing, sort of follow the thread wherever it takes you? Yes. Um, <laughs> which one <laughs> um i uh, so i just finished writing a mystery novel i'm, I'm about to embark on finding uh, an agent and Ooh. i yeah it's a very exciting stage and also i'm kind of dreading it um but i did have a an outline um i diverged from it as i went i sort of like surprised myself with an oh this person has to do x and that changed a lot of things. And I think that's kind of normal. You've probably heard the saying, no plan ever survived, no war plan ever survives the first battle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, I think that's really true of writing as well, that that stuff is just going to come up and you're going to end up having to shift gears. But there are plenty of writers who can plan every single thing and write it to that plan. I, I'm definitely not one of those. Us either. So you're in good yeah, company. Not even close. So <laughs> is this book your first novel? 
I have a co-written novel called The Persistence of Dreams that I wrote with a guy named Robert Waters. And that came out a couple of years ago, maybe now. And that's an alternate history novel that takes place in um, the 1632 universe. Six mile diameter chunk of West Virginia gets trans- transferred from 2000 into 1632. Oh. And hilarity ensues. <laughs> It, there's actually a tremendous uh, number of books in the series and a whole lot of short stories, and um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be part of that. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot about art, actually. Interesting. That would have taken a lot of research to make sure that worked yeah. properly. Yeah, that's been one of the benefits for me of having a co-writer. I think he's got more comfort working in alternate history than I do, probably. And so it's helped keep the momentum where I might feel like I need to go read two books in order to write this paragraph. <laughs> he just kind of forges ahead. Um, yeah, because it terrifies me, the idea of trying to write that, because there's so much nuance you've got to remember. Oh, absolutely. I mean, little little casual references to slang or art styles, or we had a whole battle over an art style. <laughs> it existed before 2000, but I didn't think that the people in this town would know about it. And it was, it was really intense. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> The main character in some of the stories we've written is an artist, so we've had to kind of dive into the art side of things, which has been wonderful. Okay, so far we've covered private investigating, we've talked about art, we've talked about history, we've talked about literature. You're a professor. A professor of what? Oh, you're going to be sorry you asked me that question. Um, (laughs) No, I'm never sorry. We have no regrets. Oh, wait, just wait. I teach in the Department of Focused Inquiry at Virginia Commonwealth University. (laughs) Okay, I need some elucidation. Yeah. What does that mean? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So the department was created to teach. uh, They sort of took English 101 and transitioned it into a year-long program that does a lot more than just writing. It does oral communications. It does ethical reasoning, um, a whole bunch of other stuff to really help students transition into college more effectively. Uh, And then there's a third semester, which used to be English 200, a composition class. And that is also changed. So it's developed into a three-course sequence now. And I mostly teach the third semester, but I teach other stuff too. And I also teach interdisciplinary studies. And I teach some classes in the English department. And occasionally you sleep. And occasionally I sleep. (laughs) Not that often, though. I am not sorry I asked. I'm really glad I asked. That was an interesting answer. It just seems like a longer answer than most people want to hear. (laughs) So as a creative writing instructor, what, what would you wish people knew about writing? Like the, the most, the best thing you wish people would like try or do or anything? Well, let me tell you about a writing exercise. This was one of my first graduate classes. The professor used this exercise and I was kind of stunned by it because some of the people in the class did their best writing all semester in this writing exercise. Ooh, take notes, everybody. (laughs) Take notes. (laughs) Because I liked it so much, I've used it in every creative writing class I've taught since then. And it's called a 24-hour story. And you basically have 24 hours and you just have to write a story. And and nobody's expecting you to spend the entire 24 hours. You have job or whatever you have going on. But within that 24-hour period, you have to crank out a story. And what that does is it sort of disconnects your internal editor a lot because you don't have time for that. 
And what it's shown me is that a lot of people get in their own way when it comes to writing. Mm -hmm. I think that that too is one of the benefits of something like NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, where Mm -hmm. you have one month to write 50,000 or more words. You don't have a lot of time to, I mean, you can plan in advance and so forth, but you have to just sit and write. And I think that that can generate some really tremendous creativity as well. Yeah, I was going to say this 24 hours just sounds like a, an abbreviated nano. Just, you know, sit down like that's all you get. Just go through and write something out. Yeah. And I've had great luck with stuff like that. With a writing group I've been part of, we would just get together once a month in a conference room back when we could do such things and write for the day. But every year or so, we would do something called a flashathon where at the top of every hour, we would pull a writing prompt out of a jar and then you just had to write for that hour on that prompt. And that generated wonderful stuff too. I, I think that anything that you can do to just sort of kickstart your writing, those kinds of flash prompts sent me off in directions I'd never gone in before. I almost never write with male protagonists and, and I started doing that with the flashathons, and for example, and that was wonderful. Hmm. Do you feel like that stayed with you afterwards? Like once you expanded into that new space, you felt like you could continue there or was it, I did it for this flash thing and now I'm not going to do it again? Well, I think you have to be intentional about it. I think that's true of a lot of things that people learn about writing. If you can learn something really interesting, but if you don't say, hey, this is interesting, I want to remember this, and I want to work with this, then then you're not really going to progress. Uh, you, you basically, you have to do the work. Unfortunately, that's the takeaway. I can't just sit down and go, today I'm going to be a best-selling author. I wish to do no work to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's something you see in writing um, classes and programs too, or even outside of them. There's the person who wants to have written a best-selling novel, novel, but they don't want to actually have to write it. Um, they just want to be somebody who has written. Right, because writing is hard. It's it's work. It is. Although I'll tell you what, when I was writing my dissertation, it turned out I discovered that writing fiction was wicked easy. <laughs> <laughs> a really great distraction. I This is one of my favorite sort of writing anecdotes about my own writing. I At a flash-a-thon, I pulled a prompt out of a jar and I started to write a piece of flash about it. And I haven't touched it in a couple of years, but last I did, it was over 65,000 words. Oh, geez. Whoa. All of which I wrote while procrastinating working on my dissertation. <laughs> Do you think you're going to go back and edit it and maybe work with it? Oh, I will. It's um, it's an apocalypse novel, and I, I kind of love apocalypses. I actually wrote a piece that I published on Medium about the sort of consequences of writing about the apocalypse. It's actually, interestingly, something that still kind of sticks with me that I think um, in terms of like, I wonder, I'll, I'll be driving somewhere and I'll think, I wonder what this will be like after the apocalypse or... I do that too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do that. Sometimes I feel like, well, I could I could do my car registration for two years, which that just reminded me I have to do my car registration. Then <laughs> You're what if the world ends and I would have wasted that entire year worth of registration? It could happen. We don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't go to that depth. <laughs> well, I mean, I could up. pay my taxes, but what if the apocalypse happens between now and exactly. then? Exactly. I love it. So, so you got to get that apocalypse novel out because I love those. I, I will put it on my short list. <laughs> so the one you're looking for an agent now, what were obviously indie books. So what makes you want to go agent versus self-publishing? Just to kind of get your, your viewpoint on that. 
Yeah, well, I thought I'd make a run at it. It's a PI-based mystery novel, perhaps not surprisingly, and I don't know that they're super popular right now. So I think it might be a hard sell. But if I can find somebody to sell the book in a way that I don't have to sell the book, that would be Mm. great. You know what I mean? If I can get somebody to do the work for free, um, Mm -hmm. why would I not? But I also am very realistic and I recognize that I might end up switching to indie. I write a lot of weird stuff. So I did my dissertation about point of view and I discovered a lot of stuff about point of view that has led me to take some really weird paths. And I Mm -hmm. think some of my stuff, I had a second person story and it took me several years of submitting it before I found a home for it. You know, I think that indie publishing might be the right solution for me with that kind of stuff. Anything with a niche market, mm-hmm. I think it makes a really good sense for. Yeah, I mean, there's no no judgment. We're, we're good on anything. We're just, I'm just always <laughs> curious as to what makes people choose one over the other. Yeah. Well, and also as a college professor, the more prestige I can get, the better. Oh, valid. Um, so does it really count? Like when these kind of things, like the fiction gets published, I guess because you're a creative writer or instructor, that would still yeah. count for you. Yeah, exactly. Now, mind you, universities don't necessarily respect uh, genre publications, but I mix that with a lot of different kinds of publishing. So I just had a short article about teaching published last week. And on Friday of this week, I'm going to have a video poem published. A video poem? Yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's about snails. (laughs) Please elaborate. Not about snails. We got that. Okay. <laughs> What's the video poem? Don't you like snails? Um, well, and, and so I don't think that's even the, the term that the journal in question uses for it. What a, what a film poem? Um, I don't remember what they call it. But it's basically a video I made because I love doing video stuff that uses some video I shot while I was at a writing residency in Minnesota. And, and there was an encounter with a local passerby um, that was really kind of cool. And I wrote a poem about the snail. So I just sort of put them all together with a lot of sound of the forest. I, I was on a walking path. And I created a thing. And I'll tell you what, there is not a big market for video poems out there. <laughs> I, I didn't even know they existed. So. <laughs> well, there you go. Let me see this because we might have to, I, I want to see this and then possibly share it on our Twitter. Oh, that'd be awesome. Where do we find it? My Facebook is wide open. So people are very welcome to come and friend me. I do get a lot of friend requests from people from um, other countries who um, aren't real, like people who pretend that they're doctor who works at surgery.com or whatever, you know, (laughs) and fake, fake military people. So if they friend request you, they should put, hi, I'd like to hear the snail poem. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, but actually, you don't have to friend me to see the snail poem, but I am very friendly. And if you want to friend me and I don't have mutual friends with you, you just have to tell me who you are and that you're not a fake person looking to scam me. Okay, so everybody go follow Mariah. So when the snail poem becomes available, you can watch slash listen slash read. I don't really know. You can experience it. Or you could be wandering down the road and explain to her how the apocalypse will affect wherever you are at that time. Yes. I'm I'm definitely interested in hearing other people's thoughts on the apocalypse. I feel like this interview has just been one long (laughs) writing (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here. Yeah, I feel like we have many more questions than we started with. (laughs) (laughs) My work here is done. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.